0: That's is
2: is the second time it's gone on. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those guys That's
3: yeah. They have asked for that, really. Oh, you can laugh. i the
0: up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What well, did you know that? I'd like to stay alive for oh, six days. I'd, like go I'd say it
3: to you, but I'll say it to well, now. you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them. What you're doing down here, you show
2: me, man. <laughs> it's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. I'm oh, at Debit here with Ken Erdie. Oh, and how are you doing? Good how soon? are you doing, Ken? Luis Suarez preparing to make his debut for Barcelona in the Clasico this Saturday. Now, the Barca website was happy to remind everyone today of Suarez's devastating record on debuts. Gruningen, he scored after 36 minutes. Ajax, he scored after 42 minutes. And Liverpool, he scored after just 11 minutes on the pitch. Now, Liverpool fans probably don't need reminding of what they're missing after last night's performance. Are you surprised at uh, the ease with which Real Madrid walked away, I think?
1: Um, A little bit. Were you, yeah? A little bit, yeah. Um, It was so, it was done and dusted so quickly. It took about five minutes of that first half from the point where Real Madrid scored to the point where they were 3-0 up. Was it five minutes? It seemed like a very like quite <laughs> a little small. longer, I think. But yeah, um, and you know, it was just. But eleven v eleven, you
2: are looking at the players out there, and clearly, Raymond Madrid are a lot better. They're, They're in better in every
1: single position, even arguably goalkeeper.
2: So was the only what was it, the Anfield factor that, was,
1: uh, that uh, was
2: that that made you surprised?
1: Yeah, I hard. mean, when was the last time you saw Liverpool completely dominated, destroyed three nil at home? I mean, because. Obviously, it was 3-0 after a short period of time and Real Madrid said, okay, that'll do. We've got too much respect for you guys to really... I mean, if you score, maybe you're going to be joining the 7-1 club. You know, we saw Roma We saw Roma <laughs> join Brazil uh, in there. You know, Real Madrid had Tony Kroos, a link to Belo Horizonte, a man who scored two goals in Belo Horizonte. Um, but, you know, they've got Barcelona on Saturday as well. So if you wouldn't mind... If we could just play this out and, you know, we'll go home to Spain happy, you'll go home um, to wherever it is that you live around here, Um, not as unhappy as you you could be, do we have a deal? Yeah. I'm not suggesting that was actually what happened, but I think there was an unspoken subtext of that second half. It was a case of, well, you know, we're not really going to particularly exert ourselves but, uh, you know, we could... I mean, Real Madrid had the, had the better chances in the second half as well, even even after they were just conserving energy. You know, Ronaldo missed the one-on-one against Mignolet, or rather, Mignolet saved a shot from Ronaldo, which was an incredible, uh, incredible to see Ronaldo not scoring uh, at that point. And I think Jeff Shreve's... You were saying oh, Jeff Shreve's him afterwards. He yeah,
2: Jeff Shreve's Jeff Shreve's them a bit. I don't know if there's much reaction to this, and then maybe I, I was... Uh, I'm overanalyzing the first question that Jeff Shreve's asked, but... He said to him, well, Cristiano, you didn't quite break break that record tonight. Probably because of all the chances you missed. Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah, we, but I, you know, I, I scored and we, we played very well. And uh, Cristiano was a very easy man to interview because he's very polite and very well-spoken and very confident. The second question was, do you think you can go on and do a back-to-back Champions League? And he said, of course. Went, Why else would I be playing this Jeff? Was the uh, hidden, hidden meaning there. But he was a little bit Jeff Shreve's. And he kind of walked away quite quickly at the end of the interview. But maybe I'm reading too much
1: into that. He, uh, I mean, I was, I was just reminded, there was a moment in the, in the first half, I think, where Jordan Henderson got the ball. He went down the sort of right channel and he tried to do some little kind of a shuffle with the ball. Mm-hmm. And the ball just sort of bubbled away off his feet. And I could just hear Mike Tyson in my head um, from the, uh, <laughs> was it Frank Bruno, when he, when he punched the head off Frank Bruno? And then his interview immediately afterwards was, "How dare these people challenge me with their somewhat primitive skills? You know, <laughs> don't they don't they know they're as good as dead or something like this?" Essentially suggesting British boxers didn't have the, their primitive skills couldn't possibly help with uh, what Mike Tyson. Was, was that going Mike to Tyson throw or
2: thing. Dredrick Tatum?
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Mike Tyson. Okay. I can remember him. Primitive skills in Mike Tyson's voice sounds is is a pretty memorable yeah. couple of words. You know, nothing against Harrison, who I think is has been one of Liverpool's better players this season. Is one of their better players full stop but you know when you're up against a team like that I mean Henderson was speaking about it afterwards um, saying look You know, I suppose they're the target for everyone. You know, it's a real kind of humble tone to all of the Liverpool reaction.
2: We're going to talk to Tony Barrett for a bit more of that reaction. We'll have Sid later on on the Clasico itself and the impending debut of Luis Suarez. In our first show today, we debuted a brand new slot. Now, I haven't had a chance to check out the social media reaction. I can only assume it's just gone insane. I'm pretty sure the internet's exploded here. Based on that assumption, I will now dip in once again to the second captain's virtual mail satchel.
0: I've got a call here that says you're the most boring, predictable, condescending interviewer around. Go back to lecturing. You have the charisma of a sick back. Oh God. That's just it. I just well, mentioned that you, not me. Okay, ain't nobody with my click, click,
1: click, click, click. Ain't nobody fresher than my mom. We don't normally my broadcast click, all the, the stuff that click, comes from scum click, around the country. Click.
2: Well, we do broadcast the stuff that comes from scum around the country again, and today's... Scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> Can I call him this? He'll take it in the right tone. This, I thought it was John interview. in Limerick. No, that was earlier. Oh, that was earlier. Okay, got another one here. This Stephen. Stephen emails the following.
1: Stephen from where? He doesn't say. He doesn't even say Stephen. Okay. Hi,
2: lads. After the controversy last night over Balotelli's halftime shirt swap, I'd like to hear your opinion on a more general question about shirt swapping. More and more now, we see players rushing up to certain famous opponents after a game, all looking for one or two guys' shirts. I'm particularly thinking of multiple Ireland players looking for Mario Gutz's jersey after the game last week. Were they? From a sports psychology point of view, is this not a bad kind of attitude to have? Should players not be putting themselves on the same level as their more famous opponents psychologically, rather than chasing after them for shirts like autograph hunters? Don't get me wrong. The lads and the Irish lads, I think, did a great job. But it just strikes me that there's not much difference between that and Balotelli. But people are queuing up to hammer Balotelli. Love the show from Stephen. Thanks, Stephen.
1: Well, number one difference between that and Balotelli is that it was Pepe who ran over and asked Balotelli for his shirt. He wasn't asking Pepe for his shirt. Um, I do think that when you go and ask someone for a souvenir from them, you know, you're begging for a relic. Please, please, sir, can I have some kind of a holy relic from you? You know, because I, I obviously put you on a pedestal. You know, you're a, you're somebody I respect. Uh, Götze obviously scored the winning goal in the World Cup final. Maybe is, you know, it is. A, you can see it's a. If you're the kind of person who collects souvenirs, um, you can see why that would be. It's not exactly you know fragment of the True Cross or whatever, but it's still. How many shirts is Mario Götze going to wear in his career? Six hundred, if he's lucky, um, and you've got one of them. Well done, you know. You can show your grandchildren. I once played a game against the guy who scored the winning goal in the World Cup final. That that kind of thing is apparently important to some people. But no, it is true uh, when you go and. When you're asking someone for their shirt, uh, it's, you know, there's no doubt about it that it's, that's a case of you're sucking, sucking up to them, not, well, looking up to them, certainly. I mean, whether, uh, whether it's, uh, whether it's necessarily going to affect your attitude. I mean, clearly you have this attitude anyway. You have this attitude of, wow, they're, you know, they're bigger than me. They're better than me. If you're getting their shirt, that's a fact. Um, if you're looking for their shirt, that's a fact. Maybe you think that anyway, but you're not going to necessarily show it to everybody else if you don't go looking for the for the shirt. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I suppose people who do that, uh, some people don't think it's a big deal. Carlo Ancelotti doesn't think it's a big deal. He says it's not a big, I don't know if he would necessarily do it himself. <laughs> Because I think Carlo Ancelotti is a is a socially aware kind of a person. It's what makes him a good manager. He knows not to cause a problem if one of his players does it. He could cause a problem about this. He could make it into an issue, or he could just say, "I don't think it's a big deal," and not say anything about it. And that's what he did last night, incidentally, when he was asked about it. Quite different from what Brendan Rodgers did. Brendan Rodgers said, "Oh, you know, I don't stand for that. You know, we're gonna we'll have to we'll have words about that." You know what I mean? Yeah. Ancelotti, he's like, okay, why would I make a problem for myself? Ancelotti just says. I don't think it's a big deal. Now, whether Ancelotti himself would do it... Well,
2: it would be weird to do it now.
1: No, it would be strange for him to do it Swapping now. Something over his coat. We swap suit jackets or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, whether he would do it as a player, I don't know. Because I, I, I think he would be well aware of how that kind of thing looks. He's a socially aware, socially intelligent man. He would be aware of how it looks. I think some players just, they don't. They don't have an appreciation of how it looks to the supporters. And maybe they don't even grasp... That it makes them look bad compared to the person whose shirt they're, they're getting. You know, at some level, these guys are just fans. You know, they're like the, you know. Um, you and know. it was also
2: we're talking Pepe and Balotelli. It's not a, a no-mark player and a superstar. Yeah, these two
1: guys. Balotelli's um, a much bigger star, much bigger than, st- than, much, than Pepe. Yeah,
2: but it's not. Um, Pepe a Champions League winner for a so Real is Madrid. Oh, yeah, I'm not trying to say that the Balotelli isn't more famous. Yeah. I'm trying to say they're not exactly in totally different spheres in football.
1: No, they're they're both... Uh, it's yeah. not like
2: Paul Green. Who was Paul Green asking for a jersey from? I'm almost certain it was Paul Green. One of the Arden players a few years back, I think it could have been before the end of a game, possibly at halftime. I don't want to say Paul Green, just in case I've gotten the name wrong, but I, I think it was. Uh, uh, and, you know, clearly whoever he was asking the jersey from is probably on a higher sphere than Green is ever going to get to. But in this case, it's a little bit strange just that Pepe... yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah. Well, but, well, maybe Pepe wanted the shirt for some particular reason. I mean, I don't know whether it's for his personal connect, co- collection or maybe he wanted it. You know, oftentimes you get players who are asked, oh, can you get me X's shirt for, you know, why reason? You know what I mean? There's Charity other, sometimes. That, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, you know, that, that could potentially be an issue. It could also be, I mean, I remember when uh, when it happened before with Liverpool with Sacco and Eto, and also Coutinho and Oscar swapped shirts at halftime of a Chelsea-Liverpool game. But... In that case, I, I think there was probably a, a sense in which Sacco knew Etto wouldn't be on the field at full time mm. or suspected he wouldn't be. So it's a case of swap shirts now while we have the chance. I mean, it's not a big deal, but again, it's it's silly for the players to do it. They should have more of a sense of how these things look, but not everybody is aware. Great email, Stephen. Uh, the success of that has now probably ensured that there will be
2: at least one more installment of the uh, the virtual mailbag or whatever we've called this slot. If you'd like to get in, uh, in touch, Drop a mail into the virtual satchel. Just use secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. It's time now for Ken Early's report on sport.
1: So there were a lot of big scores in Champions League. There was a 7-1 Bayern against Roma. a lot of ghouls. A lot of ghouls. And the Roma-Bayern was was 5-0, you know, with um, barely half an hour played in that game. That was a, a proper uh, reliving of Bella Horizont. It was, it was terrifying um, from a Roma point of view. Um, and it was similar to that to that game in that Roma then came out and missed a load of chances just after half time. Um but in the end uh, the substitutes came on for Bayern and they started scoring. They they added the, the two extra goals. Um yeah, I mean Byron looked great. Ryan Robin really gave Ashley Cole a run around. Ashley Cole came off at half time in that game with uh, with Francesco Toddy. Bad night for those two guys. And Bayern look again very formidable, but then again, they won't be playing Roma every game. There's a 7-0 also to Shakhtar against Bate, Barsovich 6-0 for Chelsea against Maribor. This is an interesting, um, the interesting thing about this was that at one point, Eden Hazard stood aside and let Didier Drogba take a penalty. Jose Mourinho didn't like that. Remember we were talking about Eden Hazard's dad and his, and his conversation that he had with Jose Mourinho, where essentially he wanted Jose Mourinho to take his very well-brought-up, very respectful, loyal, mannerly, and decent son and just make him into a slightly different person it's put a
2: little bit of devil in him there
1: yeah a little bit of devil of course if Hazard had taken that penalty he might have finished the game with a hat-trick because he went on to score two no hat-trick for you no <laughs> match ball for you nobody will remember you two goals um, uh, Hazard uh, stood a percentage he stood aside I mean imagine it's Didier Drogba he was probably quite insistent about the penalty he probably grabbed that ball I'm taking this What's Hazard gonna do, you know? Yeah. Is he gonna I mean I remember Michael Balak fighting Didier Drogba in these situations? You know, they 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 almost were pushing and shoving each other, I remember one time for Chelsea. I mean it wasn't just penalties. Balak eventually ended up taking it and scoring it. Was there a penalty against Manchester United? That was a key key moment of one of those seasons. Balak eventually managed managed to I mean Drogba was sulking, you know, refusing almost to celebrate the goal that Balak had scored. But, you know, um that was their sort of attitude at the time, Eden Hazard is is probably not physically not even big enough to do that to Didier Drogba if Drogba really wants to take a penalty. But uh, that's the kind of Reno's working away on that mm. project. Soon, Eden Hazard is going to be unrecognizable. <laughs> you know the picture of Dorian Gray. We're actually going to see that happen in real life with the, the sort of the monstrous visage of Hazard. We're soon going to um, we're soon going to see a very different side to that young man.
2: What about Arsenal's late goals? Like, oh we haven't we haven't oh, really so talked so about me. Liverpool here. Oh yeah, I forgot about
1: Liverpool. Um there was a few few key moments in that match. What I what I was a little bit surprised what I thought was actually quite a big moment was a stoppage for James's injury. Um this was James Rodriguez. In the first uh, fifteen minutes or so, Liverpool actually had played quite well. They came out, they were playing quite high tempo. Um Real Madrid certainly weren't in control of the game at that point. Um not too many chances for Liverpool, but you know you got a sense that this game is maybe going to be a contest, maybe more than we'd expected. Then Hamas Rodriguez took a blow in the face, got cut above the eye, and was going to get was getting treated for, it, but managed to sort of sidle his way onto the field and be treated there, which you're not supposed to do, obviously. Um, and this held up the game, and I thought, what's going on here? You know, then why why are they letting this happen? Why is this happening? Who's going to step forward for Liverpool and, and stop this from happening? Because you could see that Real Madrid's intention was quite clear. It was, hmm, this, you know, this, this obvious, they're obviously up for this. This is, this is their cup final. We can see that. Mm. I mean, it's not like, I mean, Real Madrid playing a lot of games like that, but they're like, okay, here we are. It's their cup final. Um, we've got to try and... The thing to do here is calm things down, slow things down, get control of the ball, pass it around a bit. Half the crowd falls asleep. The other half get fidgety. Suddenly, it's not as loud. Suddenly, they're getting a bit nervous. They're like, why have our, our supporters all stop singing? Suddenly, they're falling back towards their goal. And what they, they did this for the very simple expedient of. I mean, you could see uh, uh, Casillas at one point trying to. He took ages over the ball, you know, not not knocking it out. And then this Hamas thing happens. And again, Liverpool were standing there for a minute. I was thinking, if Jose Mourinho is standing in that technical area, he's going he's going straight for Hamas Rodriguez. And I don't know if he's going to get in close to him and maybe try and do a bit of extra work on that cut. Maybe that would be too much even for Mourinho. But he's definitely going to cause a ruckus here. Drag him off the field. Or, you know, you're going to get the captain coming over and saying, pushing this guy off the field because he shouldn't be there. So
2: Liverpool had uh, 11 Eden Hazards, did they? They had 11
1: and 12 Eden Hazards, one in the dugout as well. They're all standing there quite passively accepting this, accepting some cynical uh, tactics from Real Madrid, a vastly experienced side, Going, and, and I don't think the game was actually ever the same from that moment. I'm not saying that Liverpool players were looking around going, we're giving time to look around. All of them had a time to steal a glance at Cristiano. I think, wow, he looks, looks really amazing. He looks amazing in, in the flesh. I can't believe I've got to compete against this guy. I mean, because he, he, he had done things demonstrating his total mastery over, you know, Glenn Johnson. I mean, he jumped about 10 feet in the air at one point. Johnson's staring at him going, you can't be serious. You know, Ronaldo floats into the air, heads a ball, down and then lands gracefully from from a 10 foot jump next to Johnson he's just staring at him in disbelief Um, Steven Jarrett at least was able to take his eyes off uh, Cristiano Ronaldo unfortunately though it was only to follow the ball that Ronaldo had passed a bit like a stick a, a man who throws a stick to a dog and the dog runs after the stick and meanwhile the man goes into a goal scoring position now I'm thinking to myself Ronaldo has scored 19 goals this season he's the danger man you know, yep. Cristiano Ronaldo is the danger man in this team. If Cristiano Ronaldo is standing 30 yards, 25 yards from goal and gives the ball to someone and runs towards the box, what's the dangerous thing in this unfolding situation? Where is the danger? Ronaldo? Yeah. Ronaldo is the danger. Ronaldo is the man who's running into the box. The guy who's who he's passed the ball to is probably not going to. What's he going to try and do with this ball?
2: Get it back to Ronaldo. Yeah,
1: brilliant at this. Yes, it's
2: the best I've ever done with one of your pop quizzes.
1: <laughs> so why do you follow the pass and not the man?
2: Well, I've no answer to that, Ken. It just seems inexplicable.
1: I mean, I suppose the ball is a the ball is an interesting thing in the game. You know, a lot of the, a lot of footballers do are going to spend a lot of time focusing on the ball and its movement and trying to get there, trying to get the ball, trying to do something with the ball. That's totally understandable. But sometimes you've also got to take account of the fact that the man. Are also factors in the game, and sometimes they have to be stopped too. I mean, in this instance, Jared was the man closest to Ronaldo when he played that pass, but he ran towards Rodriguez, who already had men kind of coming towards him. He's never going to get the ball. He's not going to interfere with Rodriguez. He does, however, leave Ronaldo free to run through. I mean, I'm saying, shoulder, get into, just get in Ronaldo's way, block his physically block his way. You know, maybe, maybe get a free kick. I mean, his scoring record from free kicks isn't very good. But, you know, stop him running through. In fairness, the finish from Ronaldo was, was fantastic. You're saying Liverpool were too
2: nice then, in a lot of
1: ways. It's funny. Cause... They had fallen. By that stage, you could, get, you could already get a sense of Real Madrid's grip tightening on the game. This was five, six minutes after that whole Hamas thing. And you could sense, suddenly, that the tempo was gone from Liverpool. They were the, the Madrid players, 10, 15 yards inside Liverpool's half, had time on the ball to stop, look around... No one was getting it. wasn't like they were rushed. Yeah. They were hurried. They were being forced back. Liverpool were were dropping back. It, things had already changed.
2: It's quite possible that the Real Madrid players were noticing these things as well. Even, the, as you say, the lack of any objection, any proper objection to the, uh, the issues around the injury to James Rodriguez. Uh, the Brian O'Driscoll book, he tells a story of the game against England in 2007 when Ireland's mindset was just totally different to England's. We we knew that at the time, and it was said quite a lot. We literally just can't lose this game. There's no way we can let ourselves lose it. But he told a, a, a story of, I think it was Ricky Flutie, who O'Driscoll lined up pretty early on, went in with a hit, I think he said it's probably a little bit late, probably a little bit illegal, mm-hmm. just leaving a bit on him there, and he was expect- getting up ready for all the big forwards to come in and have a go at him. Yeah, and nobody arrived. England just took a quick tap penalty and off they went. Mm. Something similar happened to an Irish player later on. Uh, all the Irish boys are in, and this sounds so almost Neanderthal. Yeah. It's just the idea that all the big guys then have to go in and start almost start a ruckus. Yeah. But in physical sports, sometimes that is the case. It ended up that. O'Driscoll's being talked to as well as the English captain and I think it was Magnus Lund was the English player. The referee is making them apologise to each other for everybody getting involved after the second incident. Uh, L- the, O'Driscoll said he's sort of apologising to the referee just to make sure there's no more trouble but uh, afterwards Lund then goes says to O'Driscoll look I'm really sorry about that man. Mm-hmm. An, an extra I'm sorry. A, a yeah. superfluous apology and straight away O'Driscoll was like Phew. Yeah, but do you, you're, you're, that's too nice. There you, don't time, apologize. you don't apologise. You don't apologise
1: after the, the event. Yeah, shake, You know, maybe you can have a word after the game if you really still feel bad about it. But don't apologise. Don't be cringing. You know, what are you going to do? Ask me for my shirt next?
3: You know, I'll give <laughs> you my, in the case give
1: of, me, I, I, sorry, I've given. I've promised her to someone else. You have my socks if you want. <laughs> Would you like that? I can give you my socks. Yeah. You know that's the that's the way. I mean, this, this sort of deference. It's not just the case in physical sports. I mean, it's the case in every sport. Um, so were,
2: were Liverpool too deferential? Every, in
1: every sport where there's, a, where there's a crowd, the crowd is a factor in the game. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were—they of course they were too deferential. I mean, do you see Rogers shaking hands with Ronaldo at the end? Mm. <laughs> I just thought, like, what was it Keane was saying to Wally Downs? Do you always shake hands with players after you've just beaten them, Wally? He doesn't, I mean, he obviously has a particularly... You know, fanatical view and this kind of thing. You know, we're Rinal- now, Mourinho shaking hands during the game. That's another example of this. That sort is of thing. annoying. That's, that's, that, you can tell what Mourinho's doing. He's like, yeah, I'll give you, I've beaten you guys. You know, the game's over. Let's handshake because we all, we bought another game. That's over. actually the, op-
2: the opposite of being deferential. It's, it's a little bit, oh, disrespectful. no, it's,
1: it's totally, it's totally disrespectful. But, you know, Mourinho is, understands that these things are significant. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's part of his. It's a, it's a, it's a, partly a reflection of his unpleasant personality, <laughs> but also is a, a reflection of his understanding of power dynamics. Ronaldo, you know Ronaldo and Roger saying like, oh, this is great, but um, you know I just I, I kind of feel I mean I think the the great example of it in football well one of the, there's countless great examples but you know Abdulio Varela we were talking about this guy before the World Cup the Uruguay captain in 1950 in the final in the Maracana and how you have to. Exploit these type of situations. I mean, he when Brazil scored to go one nil off against Uruguay in, the, in the, what was effectively the World Cup final, um, Varela grabbed the ball and refused to give it back. Refused to give it back to restart the game. He just started, you know, puffing his chest out and sort of storming around with the ball under his arm, sort of shoving people and and generating arguments out of nothing. <laughs> yeah. Complaining about offsides that didn't exist. Compl- you know, just complaining and uh, the, his whole purpose being to delay the kickoff off for just, just to buy his team one minute. We just need one minute. Give this place a chance to settle down. These guys have scored. They're all hyped up. Give them just a minute for the adrenaline to kind of fizz through their heads a little bit and you know, maybe just put them into the little bit, of a bit. that we don't. Want, we do not want to be playing in the next sixty seconds. I just need to buy my team one second. So that's what. That's what you have to. You have to be aware of these things. I mean, Real Madrid, I think, showed that they were. Um, they they slowed that start right up, but I don't think there was a corresponding. I mean, they have been out of the Champions League for a while, Liverpool. maybe they've forgotten how to do these things. Rogers hasn't. It was his his um, you know, his his first season. When well, players Champions do League.
2: get involved in that, though, you're that's gamesmanship, and they tend to get criticised for it
1: take well, your
2: take your bit of criticism
1: yeah, just just go and do it i mean i mean at the moment liverpool players are getting criticized by their own by his own manager for like swapping a shirt at half time which is of zero significance yeah. uh, in this game anyway um we'll talk a bit more about that with uh, tony Barr. but uh, yeah arsenal two goals in the last minute now this is this is a huge a huge result for them considering the way that the season had been going um and Wenger putting it down to their superior experience this is something that Arsenal do have more than any other team. <laughs> I mean, who they, they're almost... Arsenal was... I'm not sure what the, what the situation is in terms of consecutive Champions League appearances or who has the record for that. <clears throat> I can't imagine that Barcelona or Real Madrid have, have missed too many iterations of this competition. But Arsenal will soon have that record the same way they have the record for being the only... or the unrelegated team, the team who hasn't been relegated in the longest time from the Premier League. Or how, is it that they've never been relegated? I can never quite remember.
2: They, might they definitely have in. the longest
1: run yeah. in the in the top division in English football of any club. And they will soon be the longest Champions League participants. Um, but uh, nerves play a part in the last five minutes. We had to go into those five minutes without conceding the second goal. If they had scored the second goal, it was game over. This is Wenger talking about Anderlecht. I had hope. It didn't look likely, but it happened. We took all the risks and in the end it paid off. It's a bit of a gambling situation that happens in this kind of game. But It worked. Uh, not conceding the second goal is that what he says. Rather than giving the credit to the goal scorers as such, he credits the defenders for keeping them in the game that long. Which is again another thing that you've got to look at. You know, and harp, uh, harp on on the Liverpool game, but the way in which they reacted to the first goal, I think, was with a, which was a brilliant finish. It was a kind of a humbling moment of. It was a surprisingly early and devastatingly accurate shot by Cristiano Ronaldo. One of my
2: favourite Ronaldo goals, I must say. I just really enjoyed how he was able to execute that te- technique at such high speed.
1: Yeah, at, at high speed and almost physically, almost completely extended. You know, it's like about, the ball's about as far away from him as as he can realistically, as it can realistically be with him still in control of it. And he knocks it And also the, the little chip over the top from Rodriguez is amazing. But again, you know, Liverpool, if they, if they hold out in the game a little bit longer, rather than conceding to Goals in quite short order after that, you know, because everybody knows the game is over more or less with the second goal. You got that sense. The third goal was almost on how many more is this going to be? Uh, and then there was a kind of a non aggression situation in the second half. Um, but anyway, um, Champions League goal, all very good. I thought there was some Roy Keane uh, doing a few appearances at the moment. Was he in Dublin last night?
2: Yeah, he was, was talking to Hugh Hall at the RDS last night, himself and Roddy Doyle.
1: Hugh Hall and Roddy Doyle. He's been over in England. I think these quotes come from one of his English appearances. But uh, he's talking about um, the... Uh, <laughs> well, he says, there's just a lot of propaganda now, United. A lot of nonsense gets spoken. A lot of ex-players now work for the club. They're in contracts. Ex-players from the 60s and 70s working for United. They always try to kid you on. This is Keane. Uh, I had it with all the Nanny stuff. This is when Nanny got sent off against Real Madrid at Old Trafford. My opinion was Nanny meant it. He saw the guy coming and he meant it. The guy deserved to be sent off. But I remember Robbo the next day. Robbo, who works for Man United. Great player he was. But he's employed by Man United, so he's got to comment to Man United. And what do you think he's going to say? Keane?y and I can still remember him saying it like that. Keane.y was the only one at Old Trafford who thought it was a red card well, the referee thought it was a red card, Roy Keane points out. And then he says, that's why I took a step back from Man United. They're all decent lads. don't get me wrong, but it's like a mafia situation. Uh, Now, I don't think that's actually why he took a step back. I mean, I thought that he'd taken a step back for other reasons, which we were talking about a couple of weeks ago when the book came out. I mean, being sacked and then... You know that was that was really the reason they yeah. sacked him, and he didn't he didn't agree with. He was angry, really angry about that, and then continued to be aggravated by things that kept happening. I don't actually think he wanted well, to what, step away from the ex players. No, comments that, sir. he says if you think it's a sending off, David Gill might be wrong, or Alex Ferguson, you say it. But these people are just Man United. It's Man United. Whoa, he says it's like Disneyland, Man United Land, Man United Land with effing Mickey Mouse running around everywhere. <laughs> People get swayed by Paddy Crerand. Paddy still thinks it's 1967. United have lost 5-0. Ah, you know, they were great. Paddy, come on, do me a favour. No, no, United were great. No, they weren't. Why are you saying it? <laughs> I would love to see this. Roy Keane enacting this imaginary conversation with Paddy Crerand on stage uh, moment. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah.
2: Uh, having interviewed Paddy Crerand on a number of occasions, Ken, I, I had to take umbrage with Roy Keane's Insinuations here that he's in some way biased. That
1: he's in some way biased. Well, well I
2: remember a listener told us a few years back after we'd interviewed Paddy Crerand and he'd been particularly vehement about something. I don't know, I don't whatever it was. Um, he said This uh, listener told us that he had been to a, a Man United function, ex-players, all that kind of stuff, a big dinner, whatever it was. He said about 500 people were there. All serious Man United heads. Former players, supporters, club people. And he said Paddy Crerand, even in that company, Paddy Crerand was... So pro-Man United it was kind of <laughs> scary. <laughs> well,
1: look, he's living the dream, you know. Yeah. Not not one that Roy Keane shares. Brian Robson, incidentally, has criticised him. Um, not, to, not directly as such, but he says, Is it necessary, if you're going to come out with a book, which Brian Robson has, I remember talking to him about the book at the time, don't remember anything about the book, but then again, what Robson says is, if you're going to come out with a book, why not talk about the history of what you've done in the game? The good things about the game, rather than criticize people when there's no need to criticize people. So, I suppose criticism sticks in people's memories. It's interesting. <laughs> you're reading about it you're like this is, this is quite good. <laughs> this is a bit of conflict, a bit of drama as opposed to And then we played against, you know, Stockport County and, you know, I felt a, I felt a little bit
2: like yeah, Stern John was a was a decent signing for us, kind of stuff for you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, he, Robson says um I think with the players of the day, the standard and the money they receive, I don't see why you write a controversial book and criticize people when you're only maybe doing it for the money. If you're doing a constructive book for the good of the game, which has given you a great career, then go and write a book. Talk about your memories, your great times. But these people are going right write just criticizing people to be controversial to sell more books and make more money. No, I'm not for that. Now, that's an interesting one. I, I mean, is Roy Keane doing that? Is, is he doing it for money? He does talk about money quite a lot in the book. hmm talks about it a lot um but you know i mean he talks about how how it's difficult to adjust to life after football when suddenly you're not getting hundreds of thousands of pounds a month in your bank account maybe maybe you do have that maybe you do have a have an elevator and a hard sense of uselessness i mean a lot of people looking at it from the from the point of view of somebody who's never even one month had hundreds of thousands of pounds <laughs> rolling in <laughs> you know uh I mean if that was to happen for one month in my life I would consider that a life-changing event. But you know from that perspective you might look at it and go well I mean surely the guy's got loads of money. Now he's on easy street. He can just kind of I wouldn't yet, like ever use the word pick and choose what he's going to do. But you know he's kind of in a, he's in a situation where he doesn't have to do things for money. He can kind of do whatever he wants. He's he's free. He's he's financially independent. Free. Free. Freedom. You know what a concept. You know, as opposed to having to go and do a job, uh, I mean, <laughs> I I wouldn't say, I you know, a lot of people enjoy their work. That's that can that can be the case. But a lot, people, at- a
2: lot of people, a lot of people. Maybe people sitting in work at the moment, Ken, listening to this podcast, which they probably shouldn't be doing. Oh no, absolutely. Uh, might be thinking y- along along the lines of what you're thinking there, Ken. Yeah. If I had made it as much money as Roy Keane had by the time I was in my mid 30s, you wouldn't worry about m- it. Might, might be too worried about it. But
1: out. I think the psychology is it, it works quite differently because you sort of get used to earning that much money. And then when you're not, you feel, oh, no, things have really gone off the rails. Even though it's, un- it's unrealistic, obviously, to expect that you can replicate yeah. the sort of earnings you're making as one of the best players in the world playing for one of the biggest clubs. I mean, realistically, how are you going to do that? You're talking about one of the best paid, you know, one of the best salaried individuals in the world. Unless you manage- you've you got some kind of business empire, you're not going to make any more money than that. But that feeling of, oh, I need to I need to be earning, I need to-. even if I've already got a load of money. Um it's still, it's, a, it's uh, something that keeps... But I know
2: what you mean, but that's necessarily... Uh, Keane hasn't said, I'm doing this book for money.
1: I don't think... I don't think he is... Interf- I mean, I don't anyone. think he's going to be donating the money to charity. But I don't think money is actually the prime motivation in doing the book. I think the motivation is to get certain things in the open.
2: Such as having a go at the likes of... Well,
1: basic lies. Basic lies, as he said. Not not that the book is lies. To, count, to counteract the lies. The lies, lies of so the media, yeah. uh, Man United are playing Chelsea this weekend. Yeah, I mean, an interesting uh, match, really. I don't know if you saw Man United against West Brom. I did, yeah. Now we had differing views on this one, because I thought they were quite good, and you weren't. You weren't. Well, I was just else.
2: flabbergasted at their inability to defend.
1: Mm. I know, like, Roy, one interesting
2: tactical point Roy Keane makes in his book is that everybody gets obsessed about uh, when in the media. I, I, Roy Keane didn't come across me as a very tactically astute manager or pundit in the book. There was nothing in there that particularly made you think, this guy is amazing at explaining the fundamentals of the game. Nothing
1: at all. In in fact, the contrary.
2: Well, the one point that he did make in those terms I thought was interesting was everyone gets hung up when you can see the goal from a set piece. (laughs) When actually... that's the one time in a game where six lads are running at it. it's actually quite you know have a chance six big guys five or six have a chance to run at your goal <laughs> right ahead of ball in yeah. so uh, people I think t- there's a, a huge analysis on teams who lose goals from set pieces but Man United's inability to just defend basic uh, attacks in open play yeah. really surprised me now I know some of the football they played was quite good and certainly it's a lot better than before their new signings arrived but I don't know I still I, I, I'm surprised that you were quite impressed by them this well, was West
1: Brom they are playing after yeah like, but West Brom mm-hmm. played well yeah. You know, West Brom. West Brom had Barahino playing brilliantly. I mean, Barahino in that kind of form is going to give any team problems. He really is. Uh, Chris Brunt, I thought, had a really good game for West Brom. He wasn't the only one. That you know, West Brom were playing well, um, and I've had a decent, a yep. decent enough season so far. And it's an away match as well. You know, it's not. A, it's not a gimme. You know what I mean? It's not a, a kind of. Um, I think that's a game they definitely would have lost last season. Oh yeah. Against an opponent who who played as well as West Brom had, they're definitely going to lose that game and there would would have been no sense. I think the the encouraging thing from Manchester United's point of view was the way in which having gone 2-1 down, they looked as though they were going to score. They looked as though they were going to get back in. They were able to keep up the tempo. They were able to keep coming back and coming back at West Brom and you got a sense that they're probably going to score here, and eventually they did. And you got the sense if it gone on for another five minutes, they probably would have won that match. And that's something they totally lost. It was it was gone. It's totally gone under Moyes. Mm-hmm. So I mean, there were so many games. I remember the Stoke game away from home. They they played. You know, lost one nil to stop. But it was just they just never were able to threaten. Now I think the fact that Wayne Rooney wasn't playing actually may have something to do with this fact. I think that I think that when he does play. He actually slows the game up, and and people at the moment are pointing out. We were talking about it just the other week, and and there was a piece, an interesting piece by Rob Smite about it. Van Persie's form isn't very good, mm-hmm. uh, and again, he didn't do much for them against uh, West Brom. He, he managed to hit the post, but I still think, you know, if. If you're going to have one of the... I mean, maybe the the solution would be Rooney up front and Van Persie not there. But I think if Rooney's there, he actually slows things up. I think think they're able to move the ball faster without him. He can't play against Chelsea because he's suspended. This game against Chelsea is an interesting one. Chelsea are clearly the better team. No doubt about it. But Mourinho is so risk-averse when you get down to it. Do you remember Chelsea at Old Trafford last season? No, no, very difficult me. game to remember. It was the early game in the season. Oh, 0-0. I do.
2: Yeah, it was a game where Chelsea came away with a fairly buoyed by their nil-nil and Mourinho was talking about how great a result it was. Yeah, and in retrospect, very quickly in retrospect, you're thinking
1: that was a bad Chelsea result. Chelsea should
2: have really gone and hammered Man United. But but they Mourinho's didn't realize how bad United would be.
1: Mourinho's concern was not to lose. He's like, okay, if I, you know, if I do, if I go to Old Trafford and don't lose, that's a good result. Uh, you know, the one thing he doesn't want is losing, giving Van Gaal a kind of a sense of, ah, oh, there's a there's a landmark result for us. There's a turning point. We've shown that we can compete with these guys. Suddenly doubt in the minds of the Chelsea players. The Manchester United players are thinking, well, you know, maybe we actually can. Maybe we can. You know, we just need to keep winning our games in the league. We don't have to play the Champions League. Um, see what Liverpool did last season. They were able to win a lot of games in a row. You know, they they were, it wasn't as though they were dropping like flies in the final, in the last uh Half of you know half to a third of the season, um, but Mourinho I think is so risk averse, will so much want to avoid defeat that I think Chelsea will actually go for a nil nil. I think they'll try and shut the game down and say, look, if we can win this game one nil, great. But the most important part of this is the nil that we don't concede a goal, and that uh, I think that's the way that I, m- I may be it going. And when that happens, Mourinho will walk away going, we came here, we were ten points ahead of these guys. They spent two hundred millions. They spent two hundreds of millions and we are ten points ahead of them. And uh, we're still ten points ahead, having been to their home. And let's wait and see what happens at Stamford Bridge. That's
2: Anna Kennerley's report on sport.
0: You can see the level of him. Coach, this is the game you wanted to victory, but it didn't have a wabber.
1: Oh, i such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time.
3: Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today?
1: And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. The that
0: was set. will take that
1: penalty. He was fucking dreadful. Sorry, huh? we're not
0: we're away. here. Oh, we're not. Away. We are. Oh. Apologise for that,
2: well, obviously. I'm sorry. In an exactitude, really. all right. Tony Barrett at the Times joins us, Tony, to sift through what happened last night. Everyone's talking about Mario Balotelli, I'm sure we'll, we will do so now ourselves, but is that whole issue deflecting from the more serious concerns raised by the season as a whole and last night's performance? 100% of
3: the, I think the reaction's being not only over the top it's been a bit embarrassing in some quarters whatever it was listen I'm, I'm not a, a fan of players changing shit at half time it's it, but, but it's no big deal uh, there's no issue in Madrid about Pepe doing it and, and why should there be it's it's nonsense it, it's got no impact whatsoever on the game uh, but I, ju- I just find that, find that Balotelli in general he's he's becoming this kind of all encompassing scapegoat that Liverpool can deal out whenever things go wrong. Uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you wonder, you'd wonder whether people at the club knew it was going wrong in the summer and thought, "Well, I know. Let's get someone in who, who can be our convenient scapegoat." Because that's the role more than any other that Balotelli's finished uh, filling at the minute. He's 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 not playing particularly well. Uh, he's not scoring goals and and that is where the, his problems lie. But I think if you look at as a whole, he's got much, much greater problems than Mario Balotelli.
2: I always, I, I do find the changing shirts at halftime custom a little bit weird. But I mean, probably because uh, all of us here are used to the the British model of football. And uh, you just don't, re- you don't really do that. It does seem to be frowned upon somewhat. Ancelotti, his response to the same question, I think it's normal to do that. Uh, you know, sometimes the players change at, at half time. I don't see a problem with that. And Ancelotti is a guy who's won three... Champions Leagues, hugely successful coach, whereas Rogers definitely seemed to find an issue whether it was just because it was Balotelli or or because Rogers has the more uh, the more British influence on football, but he seemed to think it was a big deal.
3: Yeah, I don't think it's just that it's it's Balotelli because Rodgers spoke out when uh, Mamadou Sacco did similar at Chelsea last season. He changed shirts with Sami Eto'o, and, and Rodgers dealt with that at the time. So, it's, listen, he's been consistent in that. I, I I just don't think it's that important. It's it's not something I like. And I'd, if it was my player, I think in private I'd say, listen, can you do us a favour? I'd, I'd rather you didn't do that. Uh, but I don't think it needs to go beyond that. I don't think it needs to become any more important. And, I know Brendan Rodgers was answering questions last night about that issue, but I just think he, he should have said we've got more important problems to deal with than that.
1: Yeah, there have been a couple of reports suggesting that Baltelli might even be fined over this. Would you give that any credence? No, I'd,
3: I'd, well, I'd be surprised. I mean, I mean Brendan Rodgers did say he would deal with it, but I mean the way I report it was that to be a reprimand. Yeah, uh, I'd be surprised if there's anything the club uh, rules that that prohibits players from doing that. That that would that would be surprising in the extreme that the club would even think of that when they draw or play his contract. So yeah. I, don't, I don't see there being a fine or a punishment, but I just see it being a reminder, listen to his favour, don't do that.
1: He did. Uh, Rogers did take him off at halftime. Now he said it had nothing to do with the with the shirt thing. And I think he said later he he wasn't even aware of it until it was brought up. Um, so the reason why he was substituted at halftime had to do with the way he was playing. Um, what did you think of the way he played? Because I, I thought actually, compared to some of the performances I've seen from him anyway... He had been playing quite well. I mean, he, he started off he started off badly, but seemed to be growing into the game a little bit. It was one of his more encouraging displays.
3: Well, I actually sent a mate of mine a, a message after 10 minutes where I said he's ran in behind twice already. And that was because it's something he hasn't been doing. And that's been a big criticism about it. He doesn't run in. He doesn't stress defences. He doesn't create space for others to play in. But he did that at the start of the game last night when Liverpool were on top. And he's running behind He's creating space that Maheem Sterling was able to run in. And other players, Philip Coutinho, Joe Allen, uh, there's a lot of space in between midfield, defence for, for, for probably a 10-minute period. And A lot of that was created by Balotelli's movement. He did deteriorate. When when Ronaldo scored, Liverpool deteriorated at an a alarming date, and so did he. Uh, I wouldn't have took him off a half time I, I was looking and thinking, what could you do? And, and one of the things what wasn't going to be take Mario off? Uh, I do think he needs to do better it it doesn't give managers enough reasons to to keep him on he's not there he's not having shots he's not uh, bringing goalkeepers into into action so from that point of view it it, it does give managers an excuse but I don't think last night was night when he, he desperately needed to come off by any means
1: yeah, well, I, I, and I'm going to ask you another question about Balotelli here. So we're kind of guilty of we're guilty of the <laughs> Tossing thing. We Tossing over about. all the other issues, yeah. Um, but uh, do you think it's going too far to say um, it's it's kind of obvious Brendan Rodgers didn't want Balotelli? I mean, he he did say categorically, I think, that Balotelli wouldn't be coming a couple of weeks before he in fact did. Uh, and then there was the incident after the Basel match where he said, "Look, you know, he's not scoring. Uh, he needs to do better," which which is not the kind of thing a manager would usually say about a new player trying to bet in. Usually they might give them a bit more support in public, at least. It seems as though Rodgers, and then we got the substitution at halftime in such a big game, he sent a few signals that, look, I'm, you know, I know a lot of you aren't happy about this guy being in the team. You think I'm happy? If that is the case, I mean, first of all, do you think that is the case? And if so, should he have maybe fought the decision to bring him in a little bit more than he did?
3: I think I think it's 100% the case he's, he's emphasised the point that it was him or no one that it was Balotelli or, or he wasn't really getting a forward uh, and I, I think that's a dangerous thing to do A because Balotelli has, has to play and you have to try and get the best out of him I and mean, in the knowledge that he, he wasn't really wanted but B it's sort of the of that debate about the way Liverpool go about the transfer business with this transfer committee and, and the manager who has the final say who has the important say and, I think in this case, it's it's been a player that's been brought to Brendan Rodgers who he hasn't wanted, but he has decided if it don't go with him, I've got no one else. Uh, whether he should say that publicly, uh, that that's a question that uh, I think will probably become more prevalent as, as the season goes on, and especially if things get more difficult. And it'll also it'll also continue because it'll it'll focus on other players. People will ask. who is responsible for bringing these players in because at the moment uh, you'd be hard-pressed to say any of them are are outstanding successes and and most of
2: them are struggling He's got Ricky Lambert in there who should be able to uh, contribute something that hasn't happened for him so far
3: no, it hasn't. I, I feel sorry for Ricky Lambert, and I'm, I'm starting that Liverpool have done him a great disservice. They, they, they present him with this romantic notion of, of ending his career as boy or Club. club, uh, and, and they, are, they do seem to be ending his career a lot more quickly than he would have wanted. If Ricky Lambert was at Southampton, if he was at most of the Premier League clubs, he'd be getting time on the pitch. Uh, but he doesn't suit the way Liverpool play. He brought him as, as a Plan B, but. It's it's fine having a plan B when you've got a functioning plan A, but when you don't have a functioning plan A, you can't really resort to plan B. And and he's he's basically he's he's there watching Liverpool play. He's back to being the supporter that, that he was when he was a youngster growing up, and, and that's not why he came to Liverpool. He came
1: to play. Mm. Well, part of the plan A, and it's something that we've talked to you about before, is um, Seaman Minyard. He's he's playing every game, and again on the third goal last night. Uh, really poor uh, decision-making, I think, from Mignolain and, and, and something like this seems to now be happening in every game. This is something, I think, that Liverpool had were aware of in the summer when something could have been done about it. Uh, what do you think What do you think they're going to do now?
3: Uh, they're going to they're have to replace him. Uh, the, the, they are looking to replace him with no question about that. The, the debate is how soon and who. Uh, Victor Valdez has been looked at for several months. The problem is Valdez isn't fit yet. Uh, the, should he prove his fitness, then Liverpool would have a decision to make. At the moment, they don't have one. Uh, he's, I think, he's looking at probably late November, early December, before he's fully recovered from his, his knee ligaments injury. I think stand, Liverpool would it be in that late? I don't think they'll, they'll look to bring him in because it, by January they could probably buy a younger goalkeeper, which would suit with the club's transfer uh, policy of, of bringing in younger players with a, with a sell-on value. Uh, for me, I think it's an emergency. I, I think Liverpool have to in whatever goalkeeper they can. Uh, the longer, the longer mini Lays there, the worse his confidence gets, the worse decision making gets. He, he's, he's drowning, there's no question about that. He's drowning, and, and while the defence is struggling, you have to ask how much of that is down to the fact that they have a goalkeeper behind them that they don't trust and who can't command their area. Liverpool can see a lot of goals. In between the six-yard box and the penalty spot and part, the reason for that is the goalkeeper doesn't come, and when he come does come, he tends to come in an unconvincing way, as we saw last night. So, I, I think some of the defenders would improve. Uh, clearly, I don't. I don't think many of them are particularly impressive, but. I do think they get better with a better goalkeeper, more command and
1: presence behind. Just the last thing, Tony is uh, this weekend is probably going to see Luis Suarez return from his uh, from his biting ban, his, his most recent biting ban, and play for Barcelona against Real Madrid. Um, I mean, I'm sure some of his former teammates are going to be watching this. Will the club be watching this, and uh, what will they be thinking about Suarez? Is it a case of maybe now it looks as though they actually sold him a little bit cheap? Uh, and there's also the fact that the previous year. He had decided he was going to leave and they had decided, no, you're definitely not going to leave. Was there, when, when they look back now in the summer, might they think to themselves, maybe we should have tried a little bit harder to actually hold on to this guy again, to to, to defy his wishes again, as we did the previous summer?
3: I, I know what you mean. I just think it was impossible. I, th- I think when they did the face, somebody did it in the knowledge that they had a, a contract that was in their favour, despite his protestations to the country, they, they did have to give a new contract that cleared that up. Uh, they did have to make it more watertight. Uh, they did know that there was going to be stronger interest from in other clubs uh, in the future, and they, they wanted to cover themselves. I would agree that the, the figure that the, they put in the clause was too low. I, I think when you look at Luis Suarez, I think when you look at the price that other players have gone for, uh, I think he, you look at him as being much more the £75 million footballer uh, but uh, he, he will he will he will flourish at Barcelona add, add back Barcelona to win the Champions League this year just simply because if you look at the impact he's had on, he had on Liverpool and the impact his depart has had on them since I think you can see what a special unique footballer he is he, he can he can carry teams single-handedly that's the level he is uh, I think Liverpool do have to regret the fact that they weren't prepared for the departure. The minute they put a second clause in, into a new contract, one that established an absolute value that he would go, I, I think they had to be prepared for him going and, and clearly they weren't because they've replaced one of the most mobile foot, forwards and wear football with one of the most static. <laughs> so the, I think, I think it's more a case of the lack of preparedness for him going rather than the fact that they let him go. I, I think Suarez has had he, had he been, had he, even if it had he had decided a different type of contract last December, I, th- I think this summer would have been a nightmare uh, because he would have kicked up a that, fuss. That would have been above and beyond everything that had gone before. Uh, and I think
2: keeping him would have become nigh on impossible regardless. Yeah, he was out of there one way. Listen, Tony, brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant. See you, gents. Tony didn't buy into your idea there, Ken. That maybe somehow Liverpool could have fought a little harder. It might have just led to a protracted summer. Well, I think
1: from what Tony was saying there, it seems his understanding of it would be that like sh- there wasn't, wasn't anything they happen. could do yeah, this time. That, really the, do. the contract was saying, "Yeah, I can go if they offer a certain." The amount. big
2: advantage of letting them go early in the summer also is that you you make your succession plan then. And as mm. Tony said, that's what they've gotten wrong. They have to, they had time to do it. They had. To, Chance to think about it. Mm. It wasn't a, there was no need to panic by as they did with Andy Carroll that time when Torres was all at the end of the transfer window, and yet they have still got it spectacularly wrong.
1: Oh, it's it's, it's really incredible. I mean, when you look through it, um, they knew they they would have to replace Suarez. They had an inkling, certainly, because I remember we talked to Tony about this in the summer before the transfer window closed, and it was it was clear then that they had their doubts about Mignolet. They didn't do anything about either of those um, situations. I mean, the, in the, at the moment in the Premier League, for instance, you've got a goalkeeper like Asmir Begovic playing for Stoke, which is, you know, I'm not saying that Stoke is not a good, Stoke is a good Premier League club, but should he really still be at Stoke? Mm. Um, why, why do they, if they were, were going to spend 25 million on a player like Adam Lallana, who didn't even start the game last night... I mean, isn't isn't he the most expensive player in the squad? I think he is. <clears throat> I mean, I don't think he's the most valuable player in the squad. That's clearly, at the moment, Raheem Sterling. But in terms of players they've bought, he's the, I'm pretty sure Lillan is the most expensive player and he, and he doesn't start a game. So to me, that's another mistake. You know, how is the most expensive player in your squad not considered to be a, a starter in a in a big game against... Real Madrid, that doesn't make sense. Not a good time for
2: coach Rogers. But we're going to talk about the Clasico, which is on this Saturday with Sid Lowe, who joins us now. Sid, uh, just before we get into Suarez's debut for uh, for Barca, Real Madrid in pretty fine fettle coming into this one. Any, are you surprised at all about how easily they crushed Liverpool last night?
0: Uh, not really, to be honest with you. Um, before the game, I, I think there's a twofold uh, analysis always when whenever you're looking towards a match, uh, one of them was the fact that Madrid were playing extremely well, and the other, of course, was watching Liverpool and knowing that they weren't, um, and that defensively, in particular, they were they were extremely extremely weak. So actually, Madrid winning three nil wasn't a huge surprise. That said. Uh, I must admit that I thought Madrid played better than I expected. I thought their their control, their their passing, the movement was was better than than I'd anticipated, and, and I thought they were very very good indeed last night.
1: This Glasgow on Saturday is honestly the most insane lineup. I think it is the most insane lineup for a football match I've ever seen. I mean, in terms of the the, the players who are going to be involved here: Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, Neymar, um, Luis Suarez, uh, quite possibly. Uh, you know, Gareth Bale, maybe if he recovers Tony Cross. This is, I mean, it's, it's almost as though the entire top 22 players from World Football have been sort of creamed off and are going to appear in this. And the rest of the game is just going to stop while these guys are on the field and, and watch.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one of the ways, I suppose, of looking at it, this and to measure how big this is, is that there's a very strong possibility that the most expensive player of all time will not be able to play this weekend. And I don't think he's going to be missed. I don't think it's going to matter that Gareth Bale's not there because the, the quality of the, the other players means means that it's... It, I mean, he wasn't missed last night. There's that photograph of him sitting at home with his feet up watching Real Madrid and think, you know, most teams would be tearing their hair out if the most expensive player of all time isn't there. And Real Madrid kind of didn't. And I think the Classico would live even without him. Now, obviously, in terms of the headline and the and, and the sense of, look at this incredible cast of characters, then it's better if he plays. But but as you say, there are just so many good players that that kind of doesn't matter. And it's, it's that classic thing of the arms race, isn't it? That with every passing year, this gets bigger and bigger. Funnily enough, you said it's always a big game. Totally by chance. And I promise you, I haven't set this up at all. I, I was picking up some papers off the shelf earlier on, and I... I've got a copy of Marker here from December nineteen ninety six, and it's the day before the Clasico, um, and that's presumably why I kept it because it was a because it was a fun copy, and it just it's got a picture of Raúl and Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, Mićević and Pep Guardiola after a week of hype, and it just says in a fun cover, "What else can we say?" And actually, that now looks pretty rubbish compared to these <laughs> things.
1: Yeah, actually, just on the bail thing, um, nobody likes to. To feel as though they're not being missed, really looking at a game like that is. Would Gareth have been have been sitting watching that, thinking to you know, feeling a little bit of this isn't good? I, I really wish that uh, my absence was being noted a bit more.
0: Yeah, I I, mean, I suppose that's the eternal that's the eternal doubt of the player who's either been left out or is injured, isn't it? The, the player who probably wants his team to win. Certainly, if it's in a in a competition like the Champions League, because he certainly doesn't want to risk the possibility of his team being knocked out and him not being able to play further down the track. But probably would like them to win with the person in his position playing poorly. Uh, I think I think that's natural for for a lot of footballers, and I think I think while all footballers would deny that, I think most footballers privately would probably admit that. Um, I, I think Gareth Bale will continue to play for Real Madrid. I think when he's fit, he'll get back into the side. But it was interesting the way they played last night because they shifted the formation. They had two uh, two midfielders, which obviously James and, and Isco alongside. Cross and Modric instead of just one of them and the other one in the front three, uh, which would have been the case had Bale, Benzema and Tamara Ronaldo all been playing together. And and I actually thought they controlled the game better without Bale. Now, Bale, what he does is in, incredibly decisive moments, scores a lot of goals, provides a lot of assists. Um, but perhaps in terms of controlling the game and keeping the ball flowing, maybe, maybe they, they, they do look a, a fraction better without him.
2: Sid Luis Suarez returns, uh, well, starts for Barcelona in this match. Is there? Uh, this is a guy who does not get phased by big games and seems to enjoy every every match of football that he plays. But even with that said, is this quite a big ask to come into a Clasico like like this with uh, with so little uh, on field preparation with his teammates?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 difficult because there, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One of them is is that bottom line, which is that. Hang on your first game back after after the the World Cup after everything that happened after a four four month ban after by the way, a World Cup that he went into not even fully fit of course, and played against England, not fully fit but still played brilliantly um, and everything that happened emotionally and, and so on with 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 the incident with Ciolini. And you sort of say, it's a classic. It's just It would just be mad to do it. But then he came back from, from the Everband and faced Manchester United uh, in, a, in, a, in a roundabout sort of way. His re- comeback from, from, from the banner Ajax was, was Liverpool's his debut for Liverpool and he scored coming on on the sub. Admittedly, he played, uh, I think, a couple of Champions League games in that gap. But his next league game was that. Of course, he comes back after injury and plays against England not fit and scores twice. So, I don't know. If I was Barcelona, I'd play him, I think. Um he he says he's 100 percent fit. He says that that, that he feels ready, uh, and there is a there is a growing sense in certainly in the Catalan media that that both he both that he will play and also that he should play. Now, to be honest with you, I think they're guessing to some extent. I think they're trying to see clues in the way that Barcelona are pl- uh, training and so on. Um, but I'm, I'm not ruling out him starting.
1: Well, I mean, I kind of assume he's going to start to just by, by virtue of the fact that they, they, they weren't able to pick this guy as their main summer signing for the last two, two and a half, two months uh, because of a ban to leave him out of the first game he's actually available for when presumably he's been focused on getting ready for this game for that entire couple of month period would seem odd.
0: Well, I suppose it would, but I suppose, but but I guess the flip side to that is that to put a player straight in to start a game um, after after an injury and after a four-month layoff, layoff, whether this was Barcelona against Real Madrid or Barcelona against Granada, wouldn't the normal process be twenty minutes as a sub in his first game? He's not a
1: normal player, though.
0: No, that's true, and 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 as the game against England, I suppose, demonstrated a game against England, an injury where where he was told, "Wolf, this is a two month injury," and he's playing against England, scoring two goals a month after the operation. Yeah, I mean, um, I, that's
1: that's the one thing that maybe that maybe would concern you a little bit because I mean, say for instance, um, Bastian Schweinsteiger was injured in the World Cup and played the entire World Cup, and we remember in the final, you know, he's his lying on the sideline, his legs are twitching, he's he's in a lot of pain. He hasn't kicked the ball since pretty much. Schweinsteiger is. Uh, It it seemed as though he said, OK, I'm going to try and win the World Cup and then it doesn't really matter when I'm back because, you know, let's see when I'm back. So so you're expecting maybe Schweinsteiger might be fit again next year. Do do you think playing, you know, a month after sustaining a two-month injury might have cost Suarez anything in that that sense?
0: I don't think uh, it's very difficult to judge. And obviously I say this as someone who's who's not a doctor and so that's the first thing to say. Uh, And it's very difficult to judge. I think that the risk, though, um, from Suarez's point of view going into the World Cup was the risk of a breakdown during the World Cup rather than a risk of collateral damage later on. In other words, um, for him to be suffering because of his knee now, it would have been because during the World Cup he pushed it too early and, and hadn't been able to come through it. Now obviously, with everything that happened in the Italy game, it's difficult to judge how he'd have responded to playing for for an argument's sake, the whole of the Italy game, then the whole of what would have been Colombia and then presumably what would have been Brazil or and so on. Um, but but uh, so, I, so I think that we, we we don't know what would happen if he played all those games. But I think the risk was then rather than now. That said, there was still a process of finishing off the rehabilitation post World Cup for for his knee because the re- rehabilitation in time to get him get in there for the England game was accelerated, um, and he was he was going through through the various kind of um, staging posts quicker than anyone expected. And actually probably quicker than some people would have liked him to. But of course, that's because the target on the horizon was I absolutely must be back to play against England.
2: Liverpool, meanwhile, have abysmally failed to replace him in any way, Sid. Uh, I noted that, um, well, actually Ken noted, uh, that the uh, at the Golden Shoes ceremony, Kenny Leash was over there as opposed to Brendan Rodgers or anybody else from Liverpool. Is that significant in any way?
0: No, I think the significance is that Kenny leash was there and the the the... the the Golden Shoe, which is handed out by European sports media um, group of magazines and, and newspapers, one of which is World Soccer, for whom I'm the correspondent in Spain, so that, that's why I was there as well. And um, basically, the Golden Shoe is an event that's that's organised by the local partner. In this case, by the Spanish newspaper Marca. And as usual, because Messi, of course, has won the award before, it was held at the same places as the Messi Awards. It would have probably been handed out by by a, a significant figure at Barcelona, but Suarez himself. Wanted it to be someone from Liverpool, um, precisely because, of course, he scored the 31 goals for Liverpool. He wanted to try and share it with them. The 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 ability, what he would have preferred, I, I think, would have been to have somehow done it in Liverpool. But organisationally, that was difficult. He wanted Steven Gerrard to come, wasn't able to, but did send a video message. So, so I think rather than seeing it as a as a hang on, it's Glee's not Rodgers. I don't think that's significant. I think what's significant in a way, is it was someone from Liverpool at all, and that was that was. Suarez's decision to try and make sure that he was expressing that well this is this is Liverpool's award not Barcelona's or at least Liverpool's award as well as Barcelona's
2: What's your prediction for the Uh, Clasico?
0: I I don't know Um, (laughs) What should be the easiest uh,
2: question is often the hardest one
0: no, I mean, I, yeah. The thing about predictions is, it always yeah. seems to me that that, that we're, we're, on a, we're we're kind of in a position where I don't know. I mean, except for except for when there's an obvious trend, and, and as I say, the Liverpool Real Madrid game, I think there was an obvious trend that Liverpool are uh, sorry, Liverpool are a, a, a poorer team than Real Madrid uh, in a more difficult moment. Than Real Madrid, and it was likely that Real Madrid were going to win that. Um, this is much harder to call. I feel like Real Madrid are stronger at the moment, and the fact that they're at home, I'm going to go for a Real Madrid victory.
2: Sid, good enough. Enjoy the game. Well, do. Cheers. The other point about Suarez, as related to what we were talking about there, is his physical conditioning. There were these photos from a few weeks back that we talked about, uh, in which he didn't look the didn't look totally fit. But he's had a few weeks since then to mm. uh, get stuck into the exercise.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't too sure about all that stuff uh, at the time because I don't. And to me, it didn't look as though he looked any different from the way he usually looks. I mean, this is, he's a kind of stocky build.
2: He's not exactly Mario Balotelli. It's not all rippling muscle.
1: No, well, I mean, he's, he seems to be strong. But, you know, he's 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 quite, he's kind of got a thick kind of body. He's got thick limbs. You know, he's not like a um, Busquets or a Crouch type. You know, he's never going to be like that. He's that's just the the way that he is. Um, I don't think his physical condition; he's never really been has never been a problem before. I mean, he's got a remarkable record in terms of avoiding injuries. <clears throat> he was ba- he barely ever had an injury at Liverpool until literally his last ever game for them when. He got the the kick from I think it was Paul Dummett that uh, injured his meniscus and caused him all the problems then uh, for the World Cup. I mean, a, a a big moment in his career really that 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 clash with Dummett because uh, if he's fully fit in that World Cup, I'm not sure. You know, again, sorry to, to keep harping on a, on a theme, but the the interesting one of the interesting things from the from the Keen book is how is the extent to which playing with an injury problem is psychologically very difficult. You know, the doubt, the self-doubt, the physical pain, the the, the self-doubt, the feeling of not, the, of frustration because you're not as good as you know you can be, or you ought to be. These are things which really get into your head. You know, I mean, Suarez and Kane to me are players who have quite a lot in common in the way that in their approach to the game, in their kind of in their outlook on life, and uh, I think that Suarez. When he did when he did what he did against Italy, I think he was kind of feeling his knee and thinking, I was at that game. Still the last game he played. Um uh I was at that game and he didn't do a lot in the game. You know, he had a he had a couple of little chances, which one of them I, I would have expected him maybe to score and he and he messed it up. Uh didn't really do a lot, but was kind of quite peripheral, which he usually n- never is, you know, if he's full. And I think he was probably thinking, This is you know, I'm just he, that, that this this frustration was kind of building up in him. I haven't done justice to myself here. I've been a, I'm kind of a passenger here in this, and I think probably fed into the uh, into what happened, which obviously ended up resulting in this big uh, ban. I mean, it's still an idiotic decision by Suarez, but I think that was kind of the. The context in which in which that happened.
2: If you have a big interest in sports psychology, do have a listen out to the first show we've done. We spoke to Mike Gervais, who's a real leader in that field. He's involved in the Seattle Seahawks over in the NFL, Super Bowl champion Seattle Seahawks. And we had a good chat with him. We also talked to U.S. Murph, San Francisco Giants. His team are in the middle of a World Series uh, against Kansas City. And Munster's Dave Foley, second row, who's waiting around for a few good few years. Really, he's twenty six now, and he only really broke in last season, having been at the club for or in the province for a number of years. We had a chat to him about the uh, ch- I keep calling it the Heineken Cup, the Champions Cup this weekend. They've got their big uh, big game tomorrow evening. So have a listen to all that if you get a chance. If not, sure, don't worry about it. You, you listen to this show. That's that's not bad going. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ken.
1: Thank you too. Huh? And we'll
2: talk to you soon. <laughs> it's is that? That's is the second time it's gone oh,
0: They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those those, those